welcome to Wool Shift Dust, a Silo TV podcast. We're here to break down episode three of Silo and Apple TV Plus. So consider this your official spoiler warning. We will be spoiling episode three from here on out. And we will be also talking about relevant parts of the book that are directly related to what we saw on screen. But we will not be spoiling any future twists. We do not watch ahead. And uh, Luke, my co-host here hasn't read the books, so we want to keep his perspective fresh. Right, Luke? Yes, that is the idea. I am the font of all ignorance when it comes to this particular podcast. <laughs> we need it, we enjoy it, we love your insightful theories. Speaking of which, let's just get right into where we left off. Obviously, we're going to break this down a lot more later. We got some comments about this, but Luke, at the top, what do you think is happening with Mayor Johns? Oh, I think she's been poisoned. Uh, I think she's been poisoned by judicial, possibly with Bernard, the head of IT, as an accomplice. How do you think they did it? Did something in the water she was drinking, probably. Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay. Taking that on board. Now, yeah, we're not going to spend too much time in this intro section because we've got a lot to get into in today's recap, including a deeper dive into the production design, plus a busy feedback channel full of controversy. So we're just going to hop right into it. Uh, But first, we're going to take a quick commercial break to help us cover some of the costs of podcasting. See you on the other side. Your regularly scheduled breakdown will begin in three, two, one. Okay. Let's get into episode three. The episode, it's titled Machines, and it's again directed by Morton Tildum. This is the last one that he's doing in this initial block. Next week, we're going to have David Semmel as director, who's known for directing a whole bunch of different things like Buffy, House, American Horror Story, etc., etc., but that's next week. This week, Morton Tilden. And as the writer, we have Ingrid Escajeda, I'm thinking is pronounced. Uh, she's been a writer producer on series like Justified and Sneaky Pete. So she's already proven herself to showrunner Graham Yost for sure. This episode, along with some pieces of the last episode, it's based on the second section of the novel Wool, meaning it was the second serialized short story uh, that was once on its own, later collected together into this book, once Hugh Howey decided to pick it back up after the success of the Allison and Holston tale. This section, it's called Proper Gage, and this entire story is told from Mayor John's perspective in the book. Last week, I talked about how the title Proper Gage is related to John's knitting. So choosing the right knitting needles so that your knit is neither too tight nor too porous. But this episode, we see that that title also refers to the title of this episode, Machines. Luke, how deep does your knowledge of machinery run? Not very deep. If you want anything technical, ask my brother. I am not the technical member of this family. Yeah, but I I did really enjoy the episode, I think. I messaged, no, I put it in the Discord that it really reminded me of the Chernobyl miniseries, which has got to be a good thing. Really like that series. I don't know whether it was conscious, but the music really reminded me of Chernobyl. It's that bleak sort of industrial music that was really well used and also how tense how tense was this episode as well i saw some people comment on twitter and on our discord that they had to pause the episode and come back to it i didn't have to pause it but i can certainly see why somebody would there was serious tension there Yeah, the generator scene definitely got the most feedback by far. So we're going to get into that toward the end of the episode. But there are a lot of varying opinions on how well that worked or didn't work. But yeah, as you said, a lot of people found it very exciting, very scary. Yeah, when it comes to that engineering stuff, I'm definitely no engineer myself. But luckily, in this feedback, we do have some listeners who seem a little more mechanically minded. So we'll get into that. 
But first, we pick up at the top of the episode with Juliet, a.k.a. Rebecca Ferguson. Um, she's where we left her, hanging from a rope over a vat of water inside a vast, cemented-up digging machine. She's gone there looking for the door her partner George was looking for and apparently found just before he died. But instead, she's just found a big vat of water. And it seems like our speculations from last episode were on the money. The scene does seem to indeed have been inserted here to show Juliet's fear of open water in action. So we see her, she's scared, she immediately climbs back up, reminding us what a physically strong woman we're dealing with here. And this is interspersed with a montage of her getting blotto and what looks to be moonshine. And she's cradling George's watch, remembering him and his dead body. And later we see her, like she's really going through it rough. She's lashing out. She even punches her shadow at one point, uh, her apprentice Cooper, who's played by Matt Gomez Hidaka. Luke, what do you think of this whole sequence, this whole pattern of behavior with Julia we see at the top of the episode? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been implied in the previous episode, episode two, that Juliet might have a self-destructive streak. She certainly does here. Like you say, her way of coping with stress is not what you'd call particularly healthy. Multiple characters pick up very quickly that she's been drinking heavily and that she vomited all over the place. There's almost a running gag with Juliet's smell through the first sort of 20 minutes of the episode. I did like the line, you're not a drinker. Well, not a good one anyway. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, she had some good one-liners this episode. Yeah, that made me smile. I think you do find out quite a lot more about Juliet as a character because she's not just another worker in Mechanical. She's like the deputy head of Mechanical. She is the shadow to the guy who is running Mechanical. So actually, this makes Holston's decision to nominate her as the next sheriff a little bit more explicable and a little bit more understandable because it's not like Juliet is some nameless grunt down in Mechanical. You know, we do find out that she holds, not just that she's good with machines, but she actually holds quite a responsible position within right. mechanical as a as an organization within the asylum. Right. Um, yeah. So one thing, though, that was different in this adaptation is that, like, the death of George is more recent. In the books, it feels more like another scar on her heart, along with her mother and her brother and her estrangement from her father. But in the show, it's, yeah, it's much more raw. So I guess this explains her behavior a bit more here versus the pretty much more notably collected Juliet we meet for the first time in this section of the book. But there's one decision made this episode that I absolutely object to. Juliet, my jewels, would never punch her shadow. Other people, sure. But just no, not her shadow. That felt so out of character for me. But honestly, that's my only major complaint this episode. Did she not sort of punch Cooper for his own? I mean, it's not a good way of handling the situation. Yeah. Did, did she not do it for his own good? No, as you're he was, right. He was doing something he, he, wasn't, sp- he wasn't supposed to do. And I do imagine, like, mechanical is the kind of place where discipline gets fairly physical. It sort of, ah. it sort of, it's, it sort of reminds me of... I don't Story. think Knox is punching Juliet. That's true. That's true. Although I think I think when Knox is, is chewing Juliet out, I think he's sorely tempted to punch her to be honest. Yeah, sure. Honest, that, that, is, that is one seriously exasperated man. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, I defer to your knowledge of the books. If, I mean, if but that's, but character. it's okay. But it's okay. Like, it felt out of character. And by the end of the episode, she's absolutely, you know, when we see her dealing with the generator, that's when we see her at peak Juliet. And that was a great showcase for her character. We're going to talk about that more. But it was just at the beginning, just that particular, that moment where, like, I can understand her being raw, experimenting with drinking, whatever, you know, being mourning her love. But that that punch, I don't know. (laughs) Um, So did did, did it take you out of the show at all for a little while? 
I mean, just just for like a second, you know, and then, okay. uh, you know, what got me back is another one liner. I definitely had to like giggle snort when she said, can't he just punch me back? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, luckily, the jewels I know and love emerges as the action picks up, as I said, and we'll get into that in a bit. But first, a little bit more about the opening credits. We talked about them a bit last week, but there's been a lot of buzz online this week, especially since someone pointed out that there's a spinal cord that twists and transforms into the steps at the beginning. And others have speculated that the people streaming through the hallways and landings of the silo look like blood flowing through a body. But at the same time, I notice that the flow of people is shaped like the spinning of the pieces of the generator we see in the machine. So is it like machine and nature combined? I briefly mentioned the organic feeling of these opening credits before. We see cycles of decay, a peach or maybe an apple falling from a tree. We see a Fibonacci spiral, which is a mathematically satisfying shape that pops up a lot in nature. But you and I, Luke, we also talked about this being a map of the silo itself as you move down through it. Luke, do you think it's and all of the above or some of these or before you pointed it out, I hadn't seen the spinal column, but once you pointed it out, it definitely is there and it people that pointed that out are right, there is an organic feeling to it. The other thing, some of the Fibonacci spiral, the way they do the steps looks a bit like a double helix of DNA mm. as well. So yeah, I think the creators are definitely trying to send us a message with the opening credits. I'm just not sure what that message is yet. Um, well, so on that front, there is an interesting paragraph from this section of the book that touches on this theme. Uh, if you don't mind me sharing it with no. you. Uh, it's from John's perspective, and it's showing her thoughts while she and Marnes are hiking down the steps. And it goes, several porters crowded up the stairs with heavy loads, trying their best to satisfy demand. And John's realized an awful truth about yesterday's cleaning. The barbaric practice brought more than psychological relief, more than just a clear view of the outside. It also buttressed the silo's economy. There was suddenly an excuse to travel, an excuse to trade. And as gossip flowed and family and old friends met again for the first time in months or perhaps years, there was a vitality injected into the entire silo. It was like an old body stretching and loosening its joints, blood flowing to the extremities. A decrepit thing was becoming alive again. Now, Luke, it's interesting that this passage also talks about the silo as a body. So what do you think of that? Also, what do you think of the description of the cleaning injecting new life in general? Well, I mean, it's it's interesting because, again, to get a bit politics nerdy, uh, so Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, a lot of 17th and 18th century philosophers describe politics, describe society in terms of a human body and the different types of people making up different parts of the body. It's where we get the phrase body politic from. So it, it's not unusual in philosophical terms for people to describe a society in terms of the body and in terms of different parts of society having a relationship to one another like organs in a body do yeah okay good perspective okay so we we start the episode proper in the top section of the silo with mayor johns who's again played by geraldine james and she's waiting for marnes played by will Patton, to join her for the trek down to mechanical now we see some looming figures look down on her from a higher landing i'm assuming maybe the woman is judge meadows we hear talked about or at least someone who works for her noting that the mayor didn't stop by to see her which actually isn't really necessary because johns later makes it a point to pause in the landing like right in front of judy so the judge can see that she's not coming in. Yeah. Quick side note, by the way, the judge in the book is called Wilson, not Meadows, which obviously really doesn't matter. But I have to wonder if they chose the name Meadows to be ironic. Yeah, maybe. But I just I love the dynamic between Mayor Johns and Deputy Marn. We spoke about this last week. Yeah. But yeah, they just have this wonderful old married couple. And we find out more about that as the was, episode goes on. 
I was just about to bring that up. Anyway, Marnes and Johns are prepped for their long hike down, uh, water canisters and all, and they joke about their age, and they have that yes, dear energy, as you described it last episode, Luke. And then they start to get like a little bit flirtier, too. Mm. Luke, at what point did you start to think there might be a romantic element to this relationship? Well, I have to say, back in the last episode, back in episode two, I thought Marnes had the hots for Mayor Johns. Okay. Um, but it wasn't until this episode that I thought that was requited. And I think Will Patton is one of those actors, a bit like William, uh, William H. Macy is always like my other example of this, the kind of actor that people must go up to in the streets and, you know, sort of pat on the shoulder and go, are oh, you all right? You know, we're thinking of in whatever they do. They always end up playing the guy that gets heartbroken. And he's just really good at it. That final scene, like the heartbreak uh, yeah. Will Patton puts into that, is just right up there with Holston and Allison from last week. Yeah. And I think one of the things this show is doing absolutely brilliantly is writing characters. And I'm sure this comes from Hugh Howie because they couldn't have done it this well because they sure. didn't have the source material to work from. I mean, writing... And he was heavily involved in this adaptation yeah. too. He's one of the yeah. creators. Yeah. They are writing characters that you don't spend a lot of time with but you get to know really well and they're not just broad archetypes they do a really good job of putting in that the telling little character details but you get to know them really quickly and really well so when something bad happens to them if something bad happens to them you feel it it has impact it has weight and like I said last week, doing that after you've spent three seasons with a character is one thing. Doing it after you've spent 20 minutes with a character is a whole yeah. different skill and much harder to do effectively. And yeah, th- this show is just breaking my heart all over the place. <laughs> well, OK, we're, we're going to save the sadness for the end of the recap. But there's another moment of maybe romance we need to talk about, too, with some other people. Back down a mechanical, between Jules's drunk fest and her punching out her shadow, we see her waking up rough to the gentle touch of a character played by Remy Milner. Now, for some reason, they don't seem to name this character in the episode. But yeah, I had a, a feeling that it was a character from the books called Shirley. And our friend Silo TV fans was able to confirm that with someone from the show. So it is indeed Shirley. Book fans will know that name. And in the book, she's married, Shirley. But here... I don't know, Luke, are you catching a vibe between her and Jules? I'm catching a vibe on Shirley's behalf. I'm not catching okay. that it's requited by Jules. I don't think Jules is in a in a place, in a headspace yeah. for a relationship with anybody right now. We've already heard Hugh Howie say that in his mind, the character of Juliet is bisexual. I just don't think Jules is in a headspace for a relationship with anybody right now. Maybe as the show goes on, as the series goes on, she might. But I just don't think Jules is in a place to want a relationship with anybody right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that indeed this was put in there because, you know, Hugh Howey wants to acknowledge that he sees Jules as a bi- bisexual character. But of course, we've only seen her with George, a man. But of course, for Jules at this moment in time, it would only be a comfort. It wouldn't be a relationship. It would be a bed buddy or even more likely maybe it was something from the past before George. But yeah, that's a possibility because they're certainly friends. And like, yeah. Shirley surely is concerned because like I think most of Jules's co-workers pick up on the fact that she's not doing well, but it's Shirley that goes into her room, flat, whatever you want to call it, and you know wakes her up and makes sure she's okay as well. Also, it's a tiny little production detail, but the mechanical alarm clock. That is just a great shorthand for digital technology is a rare and important thing in the silo, and we don't have the resources to waste it on things like an alarm clock. 
I just think that's a really nice touch because this is a society that is much more mechanical than it is digital, even though they have computers, the computing power they've got, they need to run the silo. Right. So like Alison had a home computer, but she worked in IT. The average person... Well, I do. I mean, I feel like in this show, it seems like maybe more characters have computers because didn't, I mean, we're going to talk about the radio in a little bit, but didn't also Walker have a computer? Yeah, but, but, but she built that, yeah, she true. Built she that herself. It. So true. I think, I think she sort of built it from like scraps and odds yeah. and ends, to be honest. Yeah. I'm very curious in this show how many people have computers because, I mean, it does seem to be a thing where, you know, as we saw, like we talked about when Allison called out sick that day, she didn't use a computer to do that, even though she has a computer at home and the office has computers. Anyway, so in Mechanical, Shirley, she's trying to get Jules to talk about, you know, whatever is going on with her, why she's like a complete wreck. But Jules, she's not giving in. And then they're interrupted by some sort of ominous earthquake-like shaking of the entire room. Dun, dun, dun. So it turns out that the generator that's powering the whole silo is in a bad state. This is where Julia gives her shadow a kiss with a fist, to quote Florence and the Machine. And she kicks him out while the head of Mechanical, Knox, who's played by Shane McRae, he overlooks the whole scene disapprovingly. So about Knox, by the way, the Knox of the books is much older and gruffer. So I like to call this version Foxy Noxy. <laughs> <laughs> Luke, what's your overall impression of this character? I mean, I think the, the the impression is Knox is the guy in charge of Mechanical. Everybody knows that. Everybody defers to him. He's not in charge because of his title. He's in charge because people know that he knows how to get shit done. And it's, it's, he's clearly somebody that Juliet looks up to and would even if she weren't his official shadow. Um, right. And I think that the scene where Knox is telling her off, that's one of those great scenes of I'm not ang- well I am angry but mostly I'm disappointed and it's the right. disappointment that hurts Juliet not the anger. Right. Yeah, and he so he says her punishment for this punch it's either a day on the trash line or a day helping her friend Walker which like kind of seems like a no brainer decision to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, does that indicate that people don't know the extent of the relationship between Juliet and Walker? Because yeah, that seems like an odd thing to threaten her with. As yeah, a punishment. Threat, yeah. threaten her with a good time. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you. I, I would imagine everybody knows she's been hanging out in her workshop since she was 13. So like, it doesn't seem likely that that would, that no. would pass people by. But anyway, yeah, while all of this is going on down deep in Mechanical, Marnes and Johns are on their big silo tour. And we see Johns and Marnes taking water canisters from each other's packs to drink. Now, this is like a really satisfying moment to see on screen for book readers, because basically they're doing it because it's easier to reach each other's water canisters, but also because of like the touchy, touchy, flirty, flirty stuff. So just to paint the vibe that we have during this part of the book, uh, to quote just a couple lines from John's perspective again. Their hands briefly collided on the twisted railing of the spiral staircase, John's hand trailing behind her, Marne's hand reaching ahead. She had a childish vision of a more youthful times and pictured Marne scooping her up and carrying her down the staircase in his arms. Luke, do you think they translated these vibes from Book oh, to Screamo? Oh, yeah, definitely. And it's like, it's the it's the classic situation of, I like person X, but I'm not sure whether they like me. So I'm going to deflect with a whole bunch of sarcasm. And yeah, you can just tell that Mans and Johns are two people that have spent a lot of time in each other's company. But that they're enjoying the opportunity to just walk around the silo and not be mayor and deputy, just be two people out in the world. And I thought that was just, the whole thing with Mans and Johns this week is just really cute. 
Yeah. There is no, there is no other word for it. It's very cute. sweet. Yeah. 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 Um, there is one big detail about their relationship from the book that didn't make it into the show. So the reason Johns and Marnes never got together all these years, it's not just because they're married to their jobs, but it's because Marnes was John's husband's best friend. She chose the other guy, but he died a long time ago. And there's been that tension building between them all the years since. And both of them have too many feelings of guilt to act upon it until what we see this time. Are you scandalized, Luke? No, it's a, it's a real shame that didn't make it from book to screen. I think that that's a really nice additional detail. Maybe it would have taken too long to explain. But yeah, yeah I, that's a really nice additional detail. I wonder if they told the actors that, because you can tell by the performance that there's clearly some other reason why these two characters don't get together, even if it's not really communicated what that is. So right. I, I wonder if the actors went away and read the books or whether like a table reading. I think most of the actors that I heard, as soon as they found out that they were being cast, they went out and read the books. Yeah, yeah. I would imagine so. Um, and so as for the tour itself, John's she has some stops she wants to make on the way down anywhere but judicial. Uh, and first up is IT. And this is really the first full scene we get with Tim Robbins as Bernard. Luke, update time on the scale of annoying Nat to any team who would prevent Notts County from getting promoted in UK football. Where's your Bernard hater level at oh, this week? Oh, boo, hiss, boo, hiss. <laughs> Definitely right up there with any team that would prevent Notts from getting promoted. Um, I did think Bernard is trying to pay the mayor a compliment. And she just goes, if you say anybody that walked the silo at my age, you won't get the present I bought you. The way that shut Bernard up was really satisfying. I think you get um you get like a shot of them walking through IT's offices. And IT have really nice offices. They do. Like it's, it's all painted and it's nicely carpeted. Like IT looks like a very pleasant place to work if you're in the silo. And Banana's quite a plush office as well. Yeah. Much nicer than the sheriff's. And it made me wonder whether Bernard, and again, I'm sort of predisposed to think the worst of him. I wondered whether he was on the take. On the um, take from whom? I just, just sort of general sort okay. of. Okay corruption to provide services you know if you want your computer fixed or your yeah. problem fixed faster maybe some palms because okay. the man seems to be living pretty well actually yeah in, in the books actually johnson martins don't even get to go into the offices bernard just has a like meeting room outside of security where he meets people but it takes up three levels of the silo in the books yeah it looks like a pretty cushy job well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, if you're a grunt like Allison, it's one thing. But yeah, Bernard seems to have a lot of sway. So but I did think he comes off as much more affable to me here than we saw him last time. More like a reasonable guy at first, at least. He, he comes off as somebody trying to be affable. Well, yeah, I was going to say it makes it even more obvious just how much he was talking down to Allison in episode one. Yeah, it does. But I, I love Hugh Howie's description of Bernard in, in this scene in the books where John's first walks in and greets him. It's Bernard was all teeth. The front one's crooked. And I feel like that tells you everything about him. Nothing against crooked teeth. We've all been there. But you know that he's giving that Howie's giving that word a deeper meaning. Yeah. So, yeah. So in the episode, John's bribes uh, Bernard with some brandy to ask for help convincing the judge to accept Holston's pick for sheriff. But Bernard is definitely not on board. Uh, he also, like the judge, wants Paul Billings, who is the judge's oft spoken of, but as yet not yet seen, shadow. Bernard, he has a grudge against Juliet, it turns out. It seems she, he says that she stole some tape from IT. Heat tape, he says, that they used to prevent the all-important computer servers from overheating. 
Luke, what do you make of this petty theft accusation? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, Mons basically says, you know, we in the sheriff's office don't have, you know, there was no complaint. She wasn't charged with anything. But Bernard seems pretty convinced that it was Juliet that stole this tape. What I found really interesting about the scene is Bernard talking about running the numbers on people. You know, he's run the numbers on Paul Billings and the numbers say he would make a good sheriff. So I assume what Bernard is talking about there is, I assume that like all the, the silo residents have to do like some sort of psychometric evaluation test sort of thing. And, and that is used probably not by itself, but it's used as part of assigning people to which levels they work on. I mean, there is there is a, a big measure of choice in what you do, as we see with Juliet, who, you know, did to, yeah. we'll get to that in a minute. But definitely in, you know, there's definitely we know they're being closely watched and closely monitored in everything they do. And it would make sense that that would also include, yes, psychometric and psychological evaluations. Yeah. Um, so I, we, I, we heard them talk about, you know, they all know the signs for if somebody is experiencing depression and maybe suicidal, you know, that's something that's just widely propagated through their society. Yeah. So I imagine I, the way it sort of I imagined it working in my head can was that this would be quite a quite a feature of like school and whatever the whatever the equivalent of college is in the silo that people would be sort of given quite regular testing through childhood and adolescence. And then it did make me think it's all a little bit Brave New World. We talked about it, uh, the similarity last week with um, Soylent Green and this mm-hmm. scene really made me think of Aldous Huxley and um, um, Brave New World. This is so this is one of my favorite books you're talking about uh classic from the 30s can you be a little more specific where do you see the similarities just the silo creating an environment that keeps people dorsal that keeps people from asking too many questions that that through this breeding program that we think is going on through the tests that bernard is obliquely referring to here are they trying to basically do a sort of pavlovian promotion of certain behaviors and punishment for other behaviors it sounded like Johns and Bernard were very sort of comfortable in knowing what these tests were, but Johns didn't really want to talk about it. Mm. And I wondered whether it was one of the more sort of sinister aspects of the silo. Okay. So in the episode, what we do see is that Bernard, again, trying to pressure Mayor Johns about billing. And I'm pretty sure myself that in the both the book and the show, the moment Bernard tries to pressure Johns into doing what he wants is the moment she digs in her heels and she goes from considering Juliet because someone she loves picked her to getting all aboard the Juliet sheriff train. Because how dare you, Bernard? Yeah, well, yeah. It's, it's like if IT and judicial want this Billings person so badly, why? Because yeah. Mons asks the key question, would he be good for IT or would yeah. he be good for the silo? Exactly. And yeah, I think I think the mayor is increasingly, like you said, like last episode, she just didn't like Billings because Judicial wanted Billings and she thought that was Judicial overstepping their authority. But yeah, more and more, I think she's coming to suspect that Billings is the, the linchpin of a whole the sort of political bureaucratic manoeuvre on Judicial's part. And one of the things I think that comes across really well in the episode is the fact that Johns is not only like a veteran mayor at this point, she's a really, she's a popular and well-liked right. mayor in the silo as well. So I don't think IT and Judicial probably aren't in a position to replace her. So I think they're, they're trying to sort of work around and surround her with people that would do what that would do the thing they wanted them to do. We don't know what that is yet, but right. it's clear that judicial and IT have an agenda of some sort. 
Yeah, and um, speaking of you were talking about the psychometric data collection, there is they do talk about a different type of data collection in this scene in the book. They discuss the data collected during the cleaning. So basically, IT attaches devices to the suits to measure the air quality outside. And when John's asked about this in the book, Bernard reluctantly rattles off a few numbers about this before brushing her off. Luke, does that surprise you at all? No, it doesn't. And I think it makes sense to cut that from the show because I think we're building up to some revelation about the outside world. So I think it makes sense. But no, it would be perfectly logical for IT to do that because the cleanings are the only way the people in the silo know anything about the outside world. Actually, I'm surprised that in addition to the cleaning, they don't make the people who go outside like plant little little air monitors and stuff as well. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I think it it makes perfect sense that the suit would be feeding back environmental data. So one other moment I love from the book version of this scene, it's it's such a world building moment. Uh, Just to quote the book directly for a second. Bernard pulled out a piece of paper devoid of creases. It didn't even look bleached. John's wondered where IT got such things while her office was held together with cornstarch paste. And at the end of the scene, when John's is leaving, she says, I'll take your suggestion into account. John said as she took the crisp contract from the table and conspicuously folded it in half, pinching the crease with her fingernails as she slid them down its length. She stuck the piece of paper in one of her folders while Bernard watched, horrified. Luke, what does this paper talk tell you about this world and this relationship? One thing it tells me is, again, IT are not short resources, and I, I find it both interesting but very consistent with what we've seen on screen, that IT have more resources than the mayor's office, you know, the office that they're nominally subordinated to. I think Tim Robbins is playing Bernard quite close to how he's portrayed in the book. Like you say, we don't see that scene on screen, but I can absolutely imagine Tim Robbins' Bernard having that reaction. So, but yeah. just also the scarcity of paper is something that stands out to me there. The, yeah, because yeah. of course you wouldn't have trees, so it would. Yeah, and how IT has access to supplies that even the mayor's office has trouble getting access. Yeah, I definitely wonder whether IT has been playing the black market. It just seems clearly they have important skills, and yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Bernard hasn't been um, hasn't been making a little on the side. Okay, uh, so uh, on the way to their next stop, there's a group of people waiting to adore Mayor Johns, as you kind of mentioned. Uh, So this is reminding us that she framed this trip as a political tour. So basically, she's worried about the unrest following the sheriff being sent to clean or volunteering to clean. And she hopes this tour might ease some nerves. In the books, everywhere Johns goes, people recognize her and treat her accordingly. But we don't get this like meet and greet like we see here. As we discussed in the previous episodes, the stairs and the landings are too narrow for this kind of thing. Now, for me, this scene was honestly a little bit cheesy, but I don't mind it. My best guess is that they included it so that Johns could say some things out loud instead of in her head, uh, like how long it's been since she took this trip. What do you think? What did you think of this scene, Luke? Yeah, I, I really like this scene. Yeah, okay. Um, it, is, it is a little bit cheesy, but then yeah. but then all politicians walk about are a little bit cheesy. That's True. Kind of, they got the tone they were going for. And the actress playing Johns, I don't know whether she did this deliberately or whether this is just something that happened in my head. But she, when she's talking to the crowd, she goes all Ronald Reagan. Like in her, what do you in mean? Her, in her intonation and the way she delivers. And I'm not leaving until I've seen the babies. <laughs> it's just, there's something about the way she delivers it that is very Reagan-esque. And okay. I don't know whether that was a conscious thing or whether it's just something I'm reading into it. But yeah, I thought this was really effective at getting across that that Johns is not just an effective mayor, but she's well-liked. 
and she knows her business as a politician. She knows how to press flesh. And she knows how to make people feel good about themselves. She knows how to make people feel good about her. She knows how to make people feel good about the sideline. Yeah. Because the, the, she gives this little speech of, it's all about you, the community. It's very politician on a walkabout. So, yeah, I agree with you. It is cheesy. But that was entirely the tone they were going for. Yeah. And uh, as you say, yeah, she's not going to leave without seeing some babies. So, yeah, it's baby time. Or should I say, it is Jorah Mormont time. Yeah, um, Ian Glenn himself. Yeah, so we finally see Ian Glenn, who is, of course, playing Dr. Nichols, an obstetrician in the silo. And Luke, I never pointed it out, but did you notice before that this character and Juliet Nichols share the same last name? Were you surprised? No, I expected that, that they would be related. By the way, we were talking about accents on the previous episode. Right. Good grief, what accent was Ian Glenn attempting there? Well, <laughs> I, said, I, I said in the last episode we were going to be warned. Yeah, <laughs> it's my lips. Sorry, what accent are you attempting? Unlike with Juliet, it did take me out the scene okay. a, a little bit. It sounded so unlike Ian Glenn, and he sounded so uncomfortable. Hopefully, Morton Tilden or somebody else would just sort of tap in Glenn on the shoulder and go, I know we said to try an American accent, but maybe just speak your regular voice. <laughs> I don't know. I think that would be that would be a lot weirder because people would suddenly be like, whoa, why is there yeah. somebody who doesn't have the same accent? I mean, I don't know if they had a dialect coach. Maybe that's yeah. what they needed. I know that Rebecca Ferguson talked about having a movement coach that helped her, like, capture, you know, the way that Juliet hunches a bit and is, you know, moves. I, I called it, like, a, a more masculine energy uh, yeah. than the typical Rebecca Ferguson character. But I don't know. Maybe they needed the same for accents. Not sure if they had it. But, okay, since we're talking about babies, I have to fess up to getting a detail wrong in the previous episode. Uh, Luke, you asked me what would happen if someone got pregnant when it wasn't their turn. And I said it wasn't covered in the books, but Silo TV fans reminded me that they actually do address this. They mentioned this in the second book. So I went back and took a look. And so this is not a spoiler, just some world building details. So basically, if a woman's implant fails and she gets pregnant, she's supposed to report it and get an abortion. Now, if she carries the pregnancy to term secretly, then the baby gets to live, but the mother is sent out to clean. Oh, OK. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I guess not surprising. I, I was picturing maybe a kinder version, but then, yeah, that's right. As soon as they told me, I looked it up and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, right. That actually makes total sense for the society. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. It does. And I mean, it's it's very harsh, but they live in a harsh society in a harsh world. And yeah, you can see why in that situation people would think that was justified. Right. Okay, but Johns isn't here to talk about that. She's here to talk about Juliet, the woman who was born the daughter of a doctor in the mids. But after her mother and brother's death, she took off to mechanical at age 13. And she and her father haven't been in touch in 20 years. Or at least in the book, they say it's been 20 years. Here he just says it's been a while. Yeah. Uh, so at this point in the book, we also get a little more info about what happened with Jules's mother and brother. Um, I have a feeling we're going to get more of this story in coming episodes. So I'll hold off on talking about that until then. But it looks like some details have been changed. But Luke in general, 20 years. Sure, it's a long walk and they're both really busy. But like, you and I, we go further to see our families all the time. Why do you think they really haven't been in touch, Luke? 
Well, in fairness, yes, we do. But neither of us walk there, so... No, um, it is a little bit further, though, too. It is a little bit further. I, I don't know if I can walk from Amsterdam to Philadelphia. No, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I can walk from St. Andrews to Nottingham. It sort of struck me that Peter Nichols, Juliet's father, I think they both, in their different ways, buried grief in work. And I sort of got the sense that they don't really like seeing each other because seeing each other reminds them too much, reminds them both too much of what they've lost. And right. and that's something they'd rather not think about. I do think what you get from this exchange is that Dr. Nichols still loves Juliet, still cares about Juliet, but can't express that, can't verbalise it. You can just tell that Dr. Nichols wants to get out of this conversation as quickly as he possibly can yeah. without damaging Jules's prospects of becoming sheriff. So, yeah. like, he very quickly talks about, uh, I've got a mother in breach and I need to get the baby turned around. Now, maybe he does and maybe that is genuinely urgent, but I got the sense that he was making that up as a way of ending that conversation as quickly as possible. No, I think, yeah, I, I think you picked up on it correctly, because actually, I think that the way you're describing him um, is very much like what I think of the character from the book. Interestingly, I actually thought that he came across as warmer here in the scene than I expected. In the books, it's not that he's unkind or anything. He's just very matter of fact and, and to the point. And um, I found it an interesting and specific characterization. That it reminds me of certain people I know, but I, I'm OK with this version, too. And it's interesting that you still see those things in that. There, so it's still there. I, and I'm interested to see how this slightly warmer Dr. Nichols will play out across future interactions. I think when you're writing for TV, I think there is a general tendency to make even your distant, spiky characters just a little bit warmer. Because I think what you read on the page, I think your own imagination, like you say, you can link characters on the page with your own imagination with people you know. And you can sort of invest those characters with the strengths of real people that you know. I, I think if you do that on screen, you run the risk of making the character more unpleasant and more unlikable than you need to. I think you right. probably need that sort of spoonful of sugar to make the character go down. Unless unless your intent is to really make the audience take against a particular character. <laughs> Bernard. Bernard. Okay, so also from the scene, some people have pointed out that the nurse who was with Dr. Nichols, who gets dismissed, she sticks around after she leaves the room and appears to be spying. Now, Luke, if she's a spy, who do you think she's reporting to? Oh, judicial. Judicial every day of the week. I have, <laughs> to, say, I have to say, I've watched the episode through multiple times. I didn't notice that. So if she is a spy, she's a good one. Yeah, no, it is interesting because after it was pointed out, then when I watched it again, I see like they actually show her lingering outside the window. And it's like, oh, well, why show us that shot? But okay, okay that's, but, that's really interesting. But who, if it's if it's judicial, do you think it's the judge or do you think it's Sims or or do you think it's Billings? I think it's the judge. We haven't spent a lot of time with Sims, but I get the strong sense that Sims is a chain of command kind of guy. I don't think he would go off and do things by himself. Okay. Um, so I think it's the judge. Okay. Well, so in any case, John's goal out of this scene was to get a little more insight into Juliet. In the book, Nichols also warns her that Jules won't take the job, but he seems to bite his tongue on that here. Now, comparatively, it's exactly as John says. He leaves them with more questions than answers. Meanwhile, down in Mechanical... Jules is with Walker. She's maybe doing her punishment or maybe just hanging out, but she's talking about the scary water place. And we also find out that Walker hasn't left her workshop in 20 years. So about as long as Jules has been there. 
And later in another meeting, talk drifts to George. And it turns out that Martha actually pulled the protective parent move and gave him the boyfriend warning. Jules, she also hands over the broken down camcorder from her digger love nest with George. And this is definitely an illegal relic. And it's it's one that's got the book readers scratching their heads and theorizing just as much as show only fans. So, Luke, do you have any ideas what the camcorder might have on it? How it might well, come into play? Well, that I'm thinking at some point we probably find a videotape because the silo has the technology to play that. So I'm thinking at some point there will be a videotape. Or maybe um, there's one in there. What do you think's on yeah. it? <laughs> Well, it would have to be footage from the before times, I'm guessing. When it says that Martha hasn't left her workshop in 20 years, maybe they just haven't explained this yet and they'll get to it. But I'm unclear as to whether that's because she physically can't or whether it's a, a psychological. It's it's more of like a social anxiety disorder. Yeah. Okay. Like agoraphobia okay. sort of thing. I think if that's there, it's been really played down. Yeah. Our screen, and I, I hope in future episodes we're going to get more of an explanation as to I mean, why they, she yeah. has left the workshop. They, they're definitely teasing more of a backstory for this character than we got in the book. So I'm also, I, there's definitely going to be more coming because they keep dropping hints about her life before. So uh, I, I'm looking forward to that as well. And I don't really have much of a better idea than you do on this one. Okay. Um. Yes, we we get some a few quality Martha Walker scenes this episode, and so another one is with Mayor Ruth, who apparently was like a bestie from way back. This is a new connection for the show, but one that like both book readers and new fans seem to love. I guess you too. Yeah, and I mean you can clearly tell that these two people know each other, that they're old friends, and that they haven't spoken in a really long time. Because John talks about Martha's spouse and how yeah. they were how they were a nice couple, and yeah, you know, Martha shoots back that was like twenty five years ago, yeah. years ago, yeah, yeah, she, yeah. So Martha Walker was married to someone named Carla, but it ended twenty five years ago. So we learned that little tidbit, and then uh, this is where I'm assuming we're going to find out more about this story in the future. Yeah, um, and apparently Carla chewed with her mouth open. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that was, yeah, that seems like a dismissive throwaway. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Are we meant to understand from that that Carla is still alive out in the silo somewhere? Because um, it sounds She, she didn't say she died, so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to see where this is going. I'm excited. So, yeah, so during this visit, uh, Ruth also asked Martha about Juliet, and I think we can assume that she got a ringing endorsement. And we also get pointed out that Walker has a radio, a toaster. Walker lies flatly, knowing that her friend the mayor will not bust her. Basically, only officials are supposed to have radios, so Walker, she's listening in on conversations she shouldn't be able to hear. Now, Luke, I have to ask you, which party would you rather be at? One thrown by Martha and Jules, or one thrown by Martha and Ruth? Oh, Martha and Ruth, because Ruth would clearly bring the good stuff. Oh, you're I right. Mean, That's true. She, she has access to a stash. Um, That's true. I'm inviting yeah. her for the brandy. <laughs> yeah. Whereas Jules is homebrew. Does not yeah. look. It looks like the kind of thing that might make you go blind. Frankly. Yeah. Much more moonshiny. Yeah. Although I've had some good moonshine, I have to say. Okay. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I agree because yeah, love Jules, but we've seen what a blast she is at parties. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, some people online have been wondering whether there's anything sinister about Martha uh, between the George thing and the radio. I even saw someone lay out a detailed theory about why that person thought that she poisoned Ruth. What do you think, Luke? Do you see where do you see Martha Walker on the Juliet to Bernard scale? Ooh. See, I would have had Juliet. But actually, 
Now that you mention it, yeah, there, there could be. I still think it was judicial that ordered, that, that sort of was behind the idea of having the mayor poisoned. But mm. yeah, there's the possibility that, that Martha is an informant agent for Judicial, because like I said in the last episode, Judicial seems to be the silos, you know, secret police force in charge of not just maintaining order, but maintaining control of the silos. Perfectly possible that Martha could be like a, a paid informant of Judicial. But I think it's it's less important who administered the poison than whose interests does it serve. The odds of that point towards Judge Meadows. But yeah, I think that would be interesting. Martha does actually say to Jules at the end of the episode, I'll be listening, you know. Mm. So I think you're meant to take that as Martha being parental and looking out for Jules. But I, I guess you could take that as come to me if you have any problems and then I can go and tell the judge. Yeah, I'll be honest. I personally really hope they don't go that route because Walker does have an extra way to get in touch because obviously, you know, they're not even sending each other emails. So it's an advantage that yeah, there is a way. Juliet's going to have a radio as a sheriff. Martha has her radio. And of course, nobody from Judicial has bothered Martha about having a radio. Right. Which either they more likely they don't know about it. Right. But- what if they did? You know, what if having the radio is the leverage that judicial have over Martha? So, what yeah, it, it could work. What if? All right. So back. Well, I not up top anymore. We're at least to the mids now. But as silo tour time continues, we get a good look at the many levels of the silo from offices to farms to even a leafy terrace cafe. Luke, what do you think of the look and the feel of the silo and the show in general? How do you think it lends itself to the story? I love that cafe. I like this level of detail. It's not just this level of detail, but I think the the showrunners and the production designers have thought, actually, we need to make, because we talked about this last episode, we need to make the silo livable. We need to make it a place where a fully formed, complex society can evolve and operate. So it can't just be a bunch of people trapped in a bunker underground. It has to have the full range of amenities that can support a community and that can give people a good time. There is somewhere for people to go when they're not working. I'm sure we will see this at some point, given how the show's going on, but I'm really looking forward to seeing more about the children of the silo. I'm really looking forward to seeing a school. I'm sure there is one, because I think that the show and Hugh Howie have put a lot of thought into how do we make this not a pleasant place to live, not an attractive place to live, but just a livable place where a society can actually work. Yeah. And, you know, generations of people can endure in this. And I think they do a a really good job of showing just in these brief moments that that this is a complex, fully formed ecosystem, both in the physical sense and in the social sense as well. And that cafe looked like a really nice place to hang out for a while. I really wanted to go and get coffee there. It does look like a great place to go to. And we've talked about the incredibly detailed production design in our preview episodes, that they built this massive staircase. And it turns out, yeah, they built three levels of it. So not the full 140, obviously, but this was a big build. And they also, they had to furnish 42 separate apartments that appear on screen, each with furniture reflecting the characters they're showcasing. And apparently they had working showers in them too. So this is a set that really rewards you for paying attention to the world building 
building details. Yeah. Um, there are no cameras in this silo. So if you look at the walls of people's homes, you'll notice that they're decorated with drawings of families instead of photographs. And anytime you see a sign, I definitely recommend pausing and reading it. There are some wild details tucked into some of these corners, like a sign that seems to be warning about the symptoms of certain common venereal diseases. Now, the sets and costumes, they they don't fall into the trap that some shows do where things look too clean. So here, the up top, it's as pristine as you'd expect with everything and everyone looking more lived in the deeper you go. And I appreciate the color scheme a lot. It's not just gray. In the books, I picture just a lot of gray. But here, they're using some moody mauves and some dark khaki greens to add life to the visual palette without being garish or letting us forget that we're dealing with this dystopia. Yeah, I really like particularly the the people in Mechanical. My dad was a farmer. My brother is a mechanical engineer. And one of the details I really like is you don't see it up close, although maybe you will in future episodes, but they get their hands right. People that do hard physical jobs, it's not that their hands are dirty, but you get really badly cracked skin. So you get like bits of dirt and oil that go under the skin. And so your hands look kind of cracked and dirty, even when they're clean, if you've been doing that job for a long time. I think they do a really good job of making mechanical look hard and dirty and grimy without fetishizing it. Right. That's a good yeah. one. Yeah, without making them look overly beefy, shall we put it right. that even Foxy Noxy. Even Foxy Noxy, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yost, the showrunner, he he says they always wanted more time and money, of course, but he gives Apple a lot of credit for backing them so much. Um, yeah. And Luke, in reference to some of the conversations we had before about the levels within the silos and whether or not the setting should feel claustrophobic, Graham Yost had this interview with Polygon where he said, the alleyways where people live, would it just be smooth walls? No, they'd want parts to punch out and to be recessed and have separate levels within a level because they wouldn't want people to go insane immediately. You need some variation in the form so it's not just all smooth lines. And so that ended up becoming more of an attractive looking design, yet it's also a little claustrophobic well that works because we want that sense of claustrophobia at times so in a certain way form did follow function and i think the fact that each family that each individual does seem to have their own little piece of private space is interesting you could easily imagine a situation where it's all sort of dormitory living Hmm. but yeah i think again it makes sense if you want a society If you want people to have families, if you want the society to continue, you're going to need to give people that minimum amount of private space that they can call their own. Yeah, so the credit for overseeing all these details goes to production designer. I'm not sure whether to pronounce his name in an American or French way, so I'm going to combine it. Uh, I'm going to call him Gavin Bouquet. And he's done a lot of work on big blockbuster movies, most notably Star Wars episodes one and three, but also Gulliver's Travels, Stardust, the Dark Crystal revival series, et cetera, et cetera. Though, of course, for a silo, he had lots of help from people like we, we talked previously about Pippa Broadhurst, the head of graphic design, who was responsible for, amongst other things, for making the text in the pack so that there's an actual in-universe, you know, that mantra we hear over and over. But by the way, there's a funny little visual detail about the set design here that was pointed out by a cinematographer who's not working on this project, uh, but has an eye for these things. Uh, his name's Carl with a K Poiser uh, at Carl underscore Poiser on Twitter. And he brought up the prevalence of what he taught me is called Barbican Center Bevels. 
So basically, like the oblong windows and vents and other objects around the silo whose edges are marked by, well, bevels. I'll link a tweet in in the show notes that collects these images with alt text so that you have a better idea of what I mean. And once you see it, though, you can't unsee it. It's everywhere. So (laughs) in Carl's own words, he says, it's all fun and games until you notice that it's the same shape as the computer monitors and even the taps and kitchen tiles. Um, Yeah. No, the, the repetition of that shape is definitely a big part of like this industrial art deco vibe that I'm picking up, and es- yeah. especially in the higher levels of the silo. We're definitely going to get into the cinematography and costumes and everything else as we go further in the season two. Okay, so back in the episode, Johns and Marnes, they're having a lunch date in this garden terrace we're talking about, and it's super cute. He talks about retiring, opening a stall in the market, always the talk that leads to a happy ending in TV land, right? <laughs> Now, when Johns tells him later in the episode she wants a stall next to his, you know that uh, this is going to end in tears. Yeah, but but you don't know how, because I knew somebody was going to die tragically, but I had my money on Marnes. Okay. So what happens at the end of the episode, I did not see that coming. But why can't the deputy and the mayor just get it on once before before tragedy strikes? And you were saying online that that does actually happen in the book. We're going to get to that. Yeah. Okay. But for now, it's all smiles and happy squinty eyes until they're rudely interrupted by everyone's favorite judicial goon, to quote Allison, Sims, played by Common, and their eyes go the suspicious kind of squinty. Um, yeah. Now, of course, Sims is here to put more pressure on Johns to appoint Paul Billings as sheriff, which obviously goes over gangbusters. Oh, he, hands... he, he does bring strawberries. So. He does. He hands over a strawberry tart and Johns and Marnes, they casually refuse. And then Sims plucks a strawberry off the tart and takes a bite. Luke, what do you think? Is this the classic? Is my food poisoned? No, it's not dance. Yeah, I was thinking possibly that, but the thing that made me chuckle in this scene is Mons clearly wants to eat that. Like, the mayor is having having none of it, but I think Mons is actually quite looking forward to that. Yeah, I don't know. And Will Will Patton just does a little, hmm, face. (laughs) I think the the conversation between the mayor and Sims is really interesting, because Sims is, like you say, Sims is clearly trying to intimidate her, and the mayor's having none of it. See, I actually thought Marnes was being even more salty with Sims than Johns was. I thought that he was even more so like, get your filthy, probably poisoned food out of my face. I think he wanted some cake. (laughs) Um, But what was interesting about Sims is the way Common plays it. I think he is doing this because he's been told to do it, not out of any animus for the mayor or Marnes. He's a messenger. Because I'm sort of a little bit confused here, because the way we talked about Sims in the, the preview episodes, it sounded like he was quite a senior person within the society of the silo, but I don't get the sense from the way Common is playing him or the, the sort of brief script and moments he has that that's true. He strikes me much more as sort of middle middle management. Okay. I mean, I think that he's... I guess he's he's the head of judicial security, so that's quite a high-ranking position. So he's not the judge, he's not the mayor, but I do think he has a very high-profile position within the society. Yeah, okay. And, like, I'm sure we'll find this out in the coming weeks, but why are judicial so insistent on billings? Like, why, why? Yeah, because... You would think that once the mayor, once it became clear that the, the mayor was not going to appoint Billings, they'd sort of move on to somebody else and try and find a compromise. But it seems like it has to be Paul Billings or nobody. 
Yeah, they but should have really got the bit between their teeth. But look at it from their perspective. Like, you know, they, they're like, okay, there were some other folders in that stack, but we know that everyone knows the real choice is between Billings and, and Juliet. And from the judicial perspective, Billings is the judge's shadow. Like, of course, that's who the judge wants. Yeah, but the judge is clearly not going to get that. So move on. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. Well, or will they? We'll or see. will they? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so later in the episode, we also get to see Sim's softer side uh, when he comforts his son during the brownout. Where's your Sim's love level? I, I don't know why, because like, it feels unfair to direct so much um, hatred at Bernard. But I don't know, <laughs> there's something about Sim's, there's something about Common's voice. Like, yeah. if somebody wanted to tell me that the world was ending, you know, if you, if you couldn't get Morgan Freeman, if he was busy, <laughs> Common would be a good second best. I mean, He's I... Got a deep really deep gravelly voice i i would love to hang out with common you know the actor the real life person but i'm still not convinced that i would want to be friends with sims but no. I, as you said we haven't seen as much of him yet so like i get the impression sims is a guy that doesn't really have friends i, I sims doesn't do friends um well he has his family so that's yeah, yeah. I think that he's, humanizes I think, him. I, I think he's kind of like he's kind of a, a mirror image of Holston in that I sort of sense the same commitment to a role, to a to a job. They both think of it not just as a job or as a career, but as a purpose, as a vocation. I get the sense that whatever he believes in, Sims is we don't really know what that is, but Sims is a true believer in whatever whatever judicial plan is. Okay. No. So you think you think it's a true believer, not like a just a job or any other type of situation? No, and that and that's why I said I think he's very much a chain of command guy. The idea of doing something that isn't sanctioned by the judge wouldn't occur to him because I think whatever judicial plan is, Sims is bought into that plan. Okay, so then we get to the action climax of the episode, the generator repair. Now, I have a couple things to say about this now, and then we're going to get into this more in the feedback with all those contrasting opinions I mentioned. Now, Luke, I know that you overall, you found it exciting. And yeah, I definitely too. I've got to say, I was watching it because I'm staying with my parents at the moment. So I was watching it on quite a small TV. And I did have to watch it several times to sort of make sure that I got what was happening to whom, where, when, and in what order. I don't think, like, if you're a casual fan, it's not like the Battle of Winterfell in Season 8 of Game of Thrones, where it becomes really distracting, trying to keep track of who is where and doing what to who. I did just have to watch it a couple of times to make sure I understood what was going on. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, yeah, the details kind of blurred together for me over the just the general fixing of the generator. Um, but there were two major differences compared to the book. The first major difference is that the generator itself in the show, it runs on steam like it sounds like some sort of geyser situation. They describe steam coming up out of the earth. So there's some geothermal activity there. But in the book version, it's powered by petroleum. So again, another fuel source from the earth. I actually, I do know why they've changed this. I spoke with a geologist friend this weekend, and let's just say that this change was made to respect the science. But to explain any further than that right now risks drifting into major spoiler territory. So we're going to have to pick this up again at a later time, just noting the difference. Okay. Uh, Book readers, if you want to know more, just think about what you learn in Shift. And if that doesn't do it, then reach out to me on Twitter or Lorehound's Discord. (laughs) So uh, the other major difference is, yeah, in both cases, there's a shutdown. 
But the difference is in the book, the shutdown lasts for like a, a week. Uh, and John's, she sells it as a quote unquote power holiday. <laughs> That's her branding. And yeah, John's and Marnes are actually trekking back up through the silo during the time that this is happening. Uh, now in the show, they condense that to eight hours. I completely understand why you would make that change for a TV adaptation. And also, yeah, this whole section of the book, like I mentioned, it's told from John's perspective. So we don't actually see the, the actual repair in the book. Instead, we get the political intrigue around who gets to use the more limited power generated by the backup. Actually, that yeah. would have been cool to see. I mean, in the book, so who do you think hogs the most of the backup generator power during the power holiday? Do you think it's the hydroponic farms? It's probably either the hydroponic farms or it's most likely IT, to be honest. Yeah, you're, you're right. Juliet, she wants it to be food production, but nope, Bernard and his precious servers. So that's the question. What could they be protecting? Do you have any ideas, Luke? No, but I'm sure we'll get to this in a second. There is a, mm -hmm. there is a moment that had me Leo pointing if. There are, there are a few people who have things to say about something that happens during the brownout. We'll definitely be getting yeah. to that in a moment. Yeah. We skipped over that actual repair in the books. I have a feeling that the in the book, the actual repair probably isn't that interesting to see. Just like really taking the machine apart, cleaning, fixing and aligning everything and putting it back together. And there we only cut back to Juliet's perspective to turn the machine back on when it's super quiet and calm and everybody celebrates until they get news from up top about the mayor. But in the episode, things happen in a different order, so we're not quite there yet. In the show, at this point, we get some ominous music. It made me think for a moment they might introduce an element of lawlessness during the brownout, which I thought was going to be really interesting, but alas, they did not. But yeah, that flash that happened during the brownout, uh, all the screens in the cafeterias, or at least one of them, they flashed with that same green scenery, uh, a still image of it that Allison and George saw in the video and we saw through Holston's visor during the cleaning. Yeah, and the the way this was shot, they made sure that the screen flickered just long enough so that you would pick it up. And I don't understand what you had seen. Yeah. Um. So it's maybe two or two or three seconds. Yeah. Somebody in the cafeteria must have seen that. If there aren't like rumors running wild through the silo in the next episode, I'm going to be really disappointed. Yeah. Some people who wrote in share your sentiments. This is one of like the three controversial topics we're going to explore in the feedback section a bit more. In the episode, though, Johns, she has to convince Juliet to take the job up top. And as Juliet says in this episode, everyone's convinced their job is the most important. But mine actually is. Do you agree, Luke? Do you, who do you think has the most important job in the silo? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say it's toss-up between Juliet, Bernard, and whoever runs the farms, because it, those are sort of the three essential services. Yeah. Pow power, food, and, and tech that keep the silo running. And I think, you know, Marnes and the mayor have a really short but really interesting conversation about what would happen if the power, you know, completely failed. And it's not a big conversation from a plot point of view. But it gets across really succinctly just how precarious the entire balance of the silo is. And that if any, yeah. if the generator does fail, if the farm can't produce food, if IT fails, you know, as far as the people in the silo know, they are the last of humanity. And Mon sort of basically says it's good to be reminded of that from time to time, just so that people enjoy the time that they've got. But I think he did a really good job, like Holston did last week, of explaining that actually the silo is this really fragile ecosystem that could collapse really quickly and completely if mm. any sort of one point of it failed. Yeah. So 
book show, both cases, John's barters his power holiday, as she calls it, for Juliet to agree to becoming sheriff. But in the book, the way the mayor finally convinces Jules is by convincing her that joining the power structure from within is the best way for her to make the change she wants to see. But in the show, the thing that does the trick is handing over Holston's badge, which he left with instructions that he wanted given to Juliet whether she took the job or not. Turns out on the back of the badge, he scratched out a message to her, truth. And that, good folks, is the sign that Holston promised her. Speculation ended. Luke, are you satisfied with the conclusion to that mini-mystery? Yeah, I am. And I'm going to be fascinated to see how Juliet gets on as sheriff. Because she's clearly taking the role to find out whatever Holston found out and to solve the mystery that George and Alice were working on as well. But she is going to actually have to be sheriff as well. Yeah. And like, we've already seen how she deals with issues with Cooper. Um, Is she going to go around smacking people upside the head all over the silos? Obviously, the focus is going to be on solving the mystery, but I'm going to be really interested to see just how she gets on day to day as sheriff. I think that could be quite interesting. Good point. Oh, by the way, yeah, so we also have another character wandering around we've spoken about before. Down Deep Deputy Hank, a.k.a., and I'm going to see if I can get the name right this time, Billy Postlethwaite? Postlethwaite. Postlethwaite. Okay, Billy Postlethwaite. And he's the first one who notices a message on, on the badge. And Luke, I looked it up and you were right. He is the son of Pete Postlethwaite. And I did immediately recognize Pete Postlethwaite's face the moment I saw it. He's yeah, indeed, that he's guy in everything. Of- yeah, he's yeah. just one of those guys. I was trying to think after the podcast, what would you see him in? Yeah, he's Killian Murphy's father in uh, Inception. That was the last. Uh, okay. That was the last role he played before he passed away. Actually. Oh, I didn't realize he passed away. Oh, okay. Yeah. But yeah, so this is his son. But of course, this is not the end of our recap because we still haven't discussed that kiss. Now, while the officer down in mechanical, she offers a cot and holding and a bed in her office to John's and Marnes. And that's actually that's a nod to the many sleeping arrangements that the two had. They when they took this trip in the book, they stayed overnight one night on the way down and three nights on the way back up because it takes a lot longer to climb. And they kept being put in separate rooms the whole time. But secretly, like we saw from John's perspective, it was clear secretly they wanted to be together and they were hanging out in the same room, then separating. Now, new to the series, though, a nice touch I love is that drawing that Marnes made of her. Luke, did your heart grow three sizes when you saw that like mine did? It did. And I like that you pointed out because I hadn't noticed that there is no photography in the silo. Right. Because why would there be? But I think that gives that drawing like even more poignancy because drawing is the medium through which people remember other people. So I just, I hope Mons gets to open a shop. I want to see Mons happy doing his pictures in his shop in the market. That's how I want the series to end right now. Yeah, I'm sure this is exactly that kind of series. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I've, already, I've already got the vibe. I've already seen enough to know I'm going to be disappointed. But I mean, yeah, hopefully there's a happy ending eventually. Yeah. Uh, for at least some people. Yeah. So, OK, so in the episode, we saw Johns and Marnes walk out on the landing together. They discussed the dead, although not specifically John's husband, like in the book. But they do confess their love and then they share a kiss Now, things are looking great for this December-December couple on their way back up through the silo. There's all those promises of retirement and all that and uh, discussion of wine and bedrooms. And then we find John's on the floor of the bathroom choking on her own blood. I got to say, the book perspective was kind of gentler in this case because since we are seeing it from John's perspective, 
She's delirious and is not really sure what's going on. Marnes is yelling about blood in the background and she's feeling real forever sleepy. Now, seeing it from Marnes' perspective, my God, that was painful. Yeah, and the thing is, in the moment before where he's getting the bottle of wine and you think one will be enough, should I get... Like, Marnes is just so happy. He's beside himself happy and, like, clearly this is something he's wanted to happen for a very long time and he's just just really enjoying the moment and that makes it all the more heartbreaking when he breaks down the door and sees Mayor Johns on the floor. The, The way he delivers that sort of final line is just, just heartbreaking. The desperation in his voice for everything to be all right and the knowledge that it isn't gonna be. Yeah, we're definitely going to get into this this topic a little bit more in the feedback. Uh, people definitely have thoughts about what happened here. But for now, I just want to give a little gift to the Silazins of Twitter and beyond who wish that Johns could have gotten a little something something before all this went down. That includes you, Luke. <laughs> so to the empathetically thirsty amongst us, I, I give a scene not of sex, but of something a little hotter and deeper than what we got to see on screen, in my opinion. My last and longest book reading for this episode comes from the last night during their trek back up when they stayed in a deputy station somewhere in the midst. She's got a fancily laid bed and he's been put in a bunk in the holding cell, at first at least. Now this scene isn't graphic or anything, but if you don't want to hear it for any reason, just press the 30 second skip button like three times. But if you're still here, buckle up for some understated mature love. Footsteps came to her, nearly invisible on the worn carpet. There were no words, just the creaking of old joints as they approached the bed, the lifting of expensive and fragrant sheets, and an understanding between two living ghosts. John's breath caught in her chest. Her hand groped for a wrist as it clutched her sheets. She slid over on the small convertible bed to make room and pulled him down beside her. Marnes wrapped his arms around her back, wiggled beneath until she was lying on his side, a leg draped over his, her hands on his neck. She felt his mustache brush against her cheek, heard his lips purse and peck the corner of hers. Johns held his cheeks and burrowed her face into his shoulder. She cried like a schoolchild, like a new shadow who felt lost and afraid in the wilderness of a strange and terrifying job. She cried with fear, but that soon drained away. It drained like the soreness in her back as his hands rubbed her there. It drained until the numbness found its place, and then, after what felt like a forever of shuddering sobs, with a sensation taking the place of that. Johns felt alive in her skin. She felt the tingle of flesh touching flesh, of just her forearm against his hard ribs, her hands on his shoulder, his hands on her hips. And then the tears were some joyous release, some mourning of the lost time, some welcome sadness of a moment long delayed and finally there, arms wrapped around it and holding tight. She fell asleep like that, exhausted from far more than the climb, Nothing more than a few trembling kisses, hands interlocking, a whispered word of tenderness and appreciation, and then the depths of sleep pulling her down, the weariness in her joints and bones succumbing to a slumber she didn't want but sorely needed. She slept with a man in her arms for the first time in decades and woke to a bed familiarly empty, but a heart strangely full. Now, I hope all of your hearts are strangely full after this episode of television. There's still more to discuss, including the three most controversial topics. We'll be back with some listener insights and final thoughts after a quick commercial break. Now opening the listener feedback channel. So, welcome back. Who's ready for the feedback round? I am. Strap in. There's there's quite a bit. 
So we start with a friend of mine from Twitter, her royal bubbliness, at JDite underscore. And she says, I started watching the show when you mentioned the trailer. I was intrigued from the first two episodes and I have so many questions. Can I just say I'm in love with the theme music? And I'm sad that the sheriff and his wife are really dead. Did they poison the masks they wear to go out and clean? Who did that to the mayor? Who created the silo? Too many questions. And oh, I also noticed Juliet and some other people had tattoos on their hands. Does it signify something? I also saw tattoos on another character in the same location. Can't remember. I'm really enjoying the podcast. Can't wait for the next podcast episode because episode three really drew me in. Thank you for the kind words. And uh, yeah, to go through your questions quickly. Yes, we're big fans of the music too. Shout out again to composer Atli Irvison. Um, This season, we should get a significant part of the answer to why the cleanings are deadly. They actually dropped a clue related to that this episode that no one is talking about. But the first time reading the book, I didn't pick up on that clue either. And they made it even a little more hidden in this show version. Now, the question of what happened to the mayor might be resolved even sooner. You'll have to wait a bit longer for the full backstory of the silo, though. That's basically the plot of the second book in the series, Shift. So I'm guessing we'll see maybe at earliest parts of it next season, likely season three. There's still a good number of mysteries to unravel first before you're ready for that story. About the tattoos... The tattoos, they're similar, but they don't match. Uh, we've really only seen mechanical characters with them so far. So this is something that Juliet will carry upstairs with her, marking her as mechanical for viewers and also for the people up there. But it also actually reminds me of a tattoo artist I follow on Instagram, Chaim Machlev. He's at dots to lines on Insta. So if you're enjoying that style of tattoos, you might enjoy his work too. Luke, do you have any thoughts about the tattoos? I'm glad somebody picked that up because yeah. I was wondering whether the tattoos had any deeper significance. My headcanon was in Mechanical, you got the tattoos when you stopped being somebody's shadow. It was kind okay. of the... It's kind of okay. a rite of passage graduation thing. I have no idea whether that's accurate, but that was where it went in my head. It seemed to be like the more senior members of engineering that, sorry, of Mechanical that had them. Um, it's not something from the book, so uh, it's, it seems to be a production design thing. Like I said, I like the designs. And we've seen, yeah, we saw there's a tattoo artist in the market. I don't know if we'll find out more. I would be curious if we do. Okay. There's nothing on the show that suggested that. That was just a bit of head Yeah. No, fair. So, yeah, our queen of bubbliness here. She also wrote in with one more question just before we started recording. But it's a question that I think more people might be wondering about. So I wanted to include it. She asked, what's the significance of the symbol with people with arms and legs stretched out in a circle? You know what I mean? We see it's all around the silo, like in official places in the mayor's office and stuff. And it's basically it's the insignia of the silo. It's showing people standing in a silo shape, holding hands. So this is, you know, signifying cooperation and community. But it also, someone on Reddit pointed out, it looks a lot like the 1967 International and Universal Exposition logo. So this exposition was commonly known as Expo 67, and it was one of the more popular of the world's fairs that was held. It was in Montreal, Canada. And this logo, it was designed by Montreal artist Julien Herbert. And the people in the logo, it's the ancient symbol of man. And uh, the pictograms of man, they're linked to represent friendship. So the icon was repeated in a circular formation to represent friendship around the world. So obviously, it seems like they're taking the production designers took inspiration from that. So I have to think that the symbolism is meant to be similar. What do you think? Um. 
So I was trying to think of something intelligent to add. I really don't have anything at this point. No, that's right. <laughs> Okay, so we have our uh, our next write-in is the dude is not in at ZDudeness on Twitter, and he love, says, "Love that Twitter handle." Love that. It's a great Twitter handle. New member of the Silo community, welcome to the Silo Squad. So he says, one of the most tense hours of television in recent memory, everyone was at an 11. I really liked the sit down with Mayor and Martha. To be honest, I was disappointed there wasn't more screen time there. The show has taught me that they are willing to revisit those scenes to give the viewer more context later. So I'm hoping for that. I'm a huge Justified fan and Graham Yost does a great job with dialogue and character interaction in these quiet moments. Luke, do you think we might get more flashbacks of the Mayor and Martha? I hope so. Because, like I was saying earlier, I think the story needs more of Martha. You need to know more about who she is, where she comes from, what her motivation is. And also maybe not more of her and the mayor, but I'd really like to see how she and Juliet met. um, Right. And sort of where this parental relationship formed. Now, I'm not necessarily saying we're going to get that in the next few episodes, because I don't think we will. But I think this might be the kind of thing you get over coming seasons. I think we're going to get more of this story. I don't know if we'll see more of, I mean, since they teased us with this relationship between Martha and Ruth, I hope that we'll get a little bit more of how they know each other, at least a reaction from Martha about, you know, the news of Ruth, what's happened to her. Yeah, Um, and and I can't imagine Martha would be the kind of person who would just let Ruth's death sit. If there's any suspicion that there was foul play, Martha will try and get to the bottom of it. Because we already know she's not the kind of person who will believe the official version of anything. Yeah. Because she's got got the radio, she's got, Mm -hmm. you know. She's got all this sort of stuff that puts her outside the bounds of polite society within the silo. So I think she will most certainly use her relationship to Jules to dig into the mayor's death. I'm expecting to see that over the the remainder of the season. Yeah, and I think we'll also get uh, more information about her, you know, yeah, her history in general, her history with Jules uh, over the course of this season. That's what I'm expecting, but we'll see. Yeah. So from Discord, and again, the Lorehounds Discord has a silo channel where you can come and talk to us uh, about the episode and just talk to everyone else and other channels to talk about other popular shows going on right now. So Greg Saul says there on the Discord, episode three didn't quite do it for me, unfortunately. I really didn't expect anything bad to happen with the generator, except maybe to Cooper. So the tension wasn't there for me. If it did and the silo was on permanent backup, that'd be interesting. But alas... It was cool to see Ruth interact with the various classes of people and get a better look at mechanical. Ruth's death, question mark, was quite surprising, though. I'm looking forward to Juliet's continuing story. Hopefully, episode four will sit better with me. Yes, so Luke, what did you think of Cooper in this episode, by the way? We haven't talked really much about him yet. I mean, mean, you don't really see that much of him. You you do get the sense that he's both intimidated by and kind of in awe of Juliet. You know, he really wants to do a good job. He really admires Juliet. He's definitely a bit intimidated by her, but he's clearly not the only person in Mechanical that that's true of. I did sort of wonder when um, Juliet took the sheriff's job. Presumably, Cooper is not going to be her replacement because it doesn't that's seem like... That's what I was like going to ask you. I mean, he's seem, a shadow, but... Yeah, but it doesn't seem like he's ready for that kind of responsibility, mm. to be honest. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that, too. Cooper's not a character in the book. We don't see Juliet actively shadow someone. She we, There's reference to a previous shadow that hopefully will... Hopefully that's a character who's coming. So, yeah, I don't really know what's going to happen with Cooper now, actually. 
I'm, I'm yeah, curious. Interest, interesting. Why do you think they felt the need to invent that character? Um, I think just as a way to show Juliet's characterization. Although, yeah, I'm baffled again by the punch, but I won't harp on about that. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think maybe to show a bit about how shadowing works and maybe to set up the relationships for if we do get this other previous shadow in the show. I've been looking for a casting announcement of this person, but I haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> yeah, so okay, okay. But they've been keeping it under wraps, the cast, so. In reference to the glitch that we've been talking about, Capo di Tutti Capi, great name, at Jeff Matewa on uh, Twitter. He says, Machines was an extremely tense episode. My favorite part was when the lights went off and the screen that shows the outside showed it green for a moment. It's crazy no one noticed. I hope it'll start rumors in the silo. I bet someone will be like Leo pointing meme. Yeah, no, somebody noticed. Somebody yeah. had to notice. Well, you saw very... there were some people who look at it. Yeah, there I think it was. People. I think it was very deliberately done that it was just on long enough to make sure that somebody did notice. I honestly think it would kind of. I'm not saying it would ruin the entire series, but I would think less of the <laughs> series if it turns out nobody noticed because it was on too long. Yeah, and it held for too long for nobody to have noticed. I can't believe that nobody would have seen that. So what do you think it is that happened there? And what do you think the effect is going to be on the people who did notice? I don't know what happened there. But we clearly see from the trailer that later on in the season, there is going to be some sort of violence. You know, we see a lot of people in riot gear in the trailers. And I'm thinking at the moment that that is going to be like rumors that the outside world is a pleasant place, is, is safe. Is mm. going to be what leads to that trouble, whatever that trouble is. Mm-hmm. Okay, good speculation. So we also have a message from our friend Rebecca Fan, who's now also joined the Lorehounds Discord. Uh, so that's been fun talking to you there. They say episode three was top notch. The main cast was great. Loved how they build up the tension throughout the episode. Rebecca was incredible. I'm starting to see a lot of comparisons between Silo and The Expanse in terms of quality and feel. In my humble opinion, that's the highest praise a sci-fi show can get. The comparisons are, are more about the feel of the show, the ensemble cast, the mystery, who controls the power, the politics, and such a lived-in world. And someone should do an edit with one of the Fallout themes playing while Allison and Holston go outside. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I'm going to make a terrible confession here, Alicia, that may, that may sink my nerd credibility below the waterline. What is that? I haven't watched The Expanse. I, I, no, okay. I, I will get round to it, I promise. Yeah. Like, Scout's on it, but I haven't watched The Expanse, so I can't comment on that. I'm just going to have to take your word for that, Rebecca. I think that you would like The Expanse because it is very much, it's all it's all about world building and the politics in that world. Yeah, I like everybody I've said this, has said, you've got to watch The Expanse, you really enjoy it, and I believe them, and I yeah. will. I just haven't yeah. got round to it yet. I know, oh, content overload, it's overwhelming. Yeah. <laughs> So we've come to the generator section of the feedback. And what I'm going to do here is I'm just going to read back to back several different conflicting opinions, and then we're going to discuss them all collectively. Okay. Okay. So here we go. So first one is from, I'm going to pronounce this, mm, please. It's MPLZZ from Discord. And they say, unfortunately, while the Expanse, so this was responding to Rebecca Fan, they say, unfortunately, while the Expanse strived for realism and science, this show didn't do that with the generator stuff. And they went on to elaborate, 
there's just no way a silo designed for hundreds of years is going to be designed where the generator can't be repaired without it exploding. There would be a way to safely bypass or vent the steam. There would also most likely be two generators for redundancy, which I did point out there is a backup generator. It just has less power. Now they go on. It also makes no sense that the founders would not have spare parts, although if we give the show the benefit of the doubt, perhaps they ran out of spare parts at some point. Uh, the pressure was also instantly released when they started the generators. So why not start it for a few seconds every 30 minutes as this wouldn't have to get up to speed to release the pressure? Juliet would have been burned alive by the steam if she sprayed a red hot glowing door with water. Also, once that tank filled up, that water would have been hot enough to cook her. Also, if you have a tank full of water that's going to cool off that door, or is it going to turn to steam? Also, why would the most important person go in there when she could have sent anyone else? I I mean, this is clearly, obviously, Jules wasn't going to let someone else do that. She could also have just filled the tank with water rather than going into it. That seems very valid. Others could have also commented how it is not realistic to straighten out a fan blade with angle grinders. I'm also curious where this free steam comes from when we know it tastes nuclear, geothermal, etc. to generate it, but it may have an explanation coming in the future. And yes, I can promise there will be an explanation for that in the future. Not anytime soon, though. Um, Also, if steam has been running through the generator, then all that metal should be too hot to touch. And I'm also not sure why it works without the cover. Isn't the steam supposed to be going through those fan blades so that's quite a list of mechanical questions i don't necessarily have the answers to the ones that i didn't directly answer but it's interesting to bring up now we go on yes steve depirate 91 on reddit he says that cafe screen flash is beautiful a deviation from the book even and says the suspense for the generator repair was a nice way to showcase jewels which yeah indeed white paper bag on reddit added completely agree that this is one of the circumstances where the visual adaptation of a book can supersede its source material with moments like that absolute chills of the glitch and silence that followed something that just had to be visually represented and pays off chillingly this in my opinion is the best episode so far of the three very closely surpassing episode one the tension was so present throughout the episode and actually had me constantly shifting in my seat everyone was all in for their performances and as i suspected they did it with complete satisfaction developing mayor johns and marns That final scene was absolutely haunting compared to how I ever imagined it while reading the book and would have expected to have it depicted. Apple TV is keeping it dark and real. So happy with this adaptation. Uh, Now, Davey Mack from Discord says, I liked episode three quite a bit. It was full of tension for me. And even though I knew that the generator and Juliet would be fine, I was worried about her shadow. That had me gritting my teeth. Silo TV fans at Silo 17 Squad on Twitter weighs in. I didn't think I would find the whole repair as nerve wracking as I did. I wasn't super invested in it when I read the book and was slightly worried that it would get boring. But I think I was about as stressed out as Knox. I did find Jules almost annoyingly out of character in the first half or so. I only started liking her again when they started the repair. That felt much more like her. I will also slap any writers who put Coop through any unnecessary shit. Uh, Okay, so we're going to pause here for a moment. A lot of varying opinions on this one, Luke. What do you make of it all? I mean, like you, I have nothing sensible to contribute to the technical piece about the generator. But if if I can go off on a quick tangent here. Okay. um, One of the things that is really interesting in the book I'm writing at the moment on the Iraq war is how little the British and American governments knew about the state of infrastructure in Iraq in 2003, particularly power infrastructure. 
And it turned out that what the Iraqis had been doing as a result of sanctions in the 1990s is they'd been bodging together the generators in power stations by like reverse engineering a load of American components so that they work with old Russian components, so that they work with old German components, so that they work with old French components. And when the American Army Corps of Engineers saw this, they had no idea how any of it worked or how any of it was supposed to work. And they literally had to go to Siemens, the German company. And Siemens had to pay a bunch of guys in their 70s, like huge consultancy fees, to come back and explain the blueprints of these turbines that had been built in the 1960s that nobody knew how to operate anymore. So I think it's always dangerous to assume that the founders would have had perfect knowledge of what was going to go wrong, how things were going to work like 140 years into the future. And it's also, I think, wrong to assume that the people in mechanical in the here and now would fully understand how the generator worked and what the full complexity of it is. I mean, they actually say in the show, we don't know where the steam comes from. Mm-hmm. They don't uh, know. But I can yeah, tell you, know. I know. So I, t- I think all those sort of technical points are valid, but never, but don't underestimate the human ability to bodge things together and to make things work in a way that they were never intended to work. Right. Yeah. That puts it in, in good real world perspective. Yeah, we got lots of compliments in there, too, that about how this scene showcased Juliet as a character. And I definitely agree. They made this scene, you know, rather than just having the repair, a boring repair happen off screen, they made it an exciting repair on screen for the action element. But they clearly also did it to let us get to know Juliet, to show who she is. And uh, yeah, Cooper punching aside, she absolutely nailed the character for me. Yeah, your physical performance is really good. You've always got to give respect to actors that want to stretch themselves, that want to do new and different parts. Right. And I think Rebecca Ferguson has done a really good job here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And going back to Silo TV fans feedback. uh, So we're moving into the other biggest topic of the episode, Mayor John's. And they say, but John's last interaction with Walker was all sorts of sweet. Also, Walker's friendship with the mayor, puppy dog eyes. Here's how I know that I'm still traumatized from Halston and Allison. John's death felt quite anticlimactic to me. It was well done, but I felt kind of untouched by it. Uh, Every character death will now be compared to Halston crawling to his dead wife. Howie has so much shit to answer for. Laugh emoji. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm I'm sorry. With all due respect. Oh, no, 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 no. I didn't find it less anticlimactic at all. I thought on the Holston tragometer, I thought that was right up there. To go from an action-packed episode that has that really sort of hopeful note when the power comes back on and everybody in the silo is, like, really happy and relieved to then end it on the absolute crushing moment and just, yeah, like, will pattern just nailed that for me it was just it was a brilliant piece of acting yeah Uh, so also on this topic uh we have shane from the lorehounds discord again shane says loved the episode heart was racing but now do we think the mayor was poisoned by judicial or she knew she was sick perhaps her water bottle could have been tampered with but it felt like she kind of knew she was sick just theorizing but i couldn't see her specifically drink or eat anything else throughout it was just that water bottle and actually something when she was visiting Martha. But I suppose it could also be the pen that she used to sign Juliet's name, but also the way she was acting in that last scene in that room made it seem like she knew she was sick. Like, 
going into the bathroom, not calling out for help, etc. But that could just be her pride. Just seemed odd not to be like, wait, I don't feel so good. Something's wrong to your confidant. Yeah, I don't. I maybe I'm wrong, but I don't. I don't think she was sick. I think she was poisoned, and I'd be surprised if judicial didn't have a hand in it. Somewhere along the line. I hadn't thought of it before, but yeah, I think the theory of Martha as a, as a spy, as the person that poisoned her, I'm not saying I believe it, but there might be something to it. Uh, yeah, I, I reject this idea. <laughs> You're not having that. You're not <laughs> no, having that. No. Martha's perfect. She's an angel. All right. Um, so we have uh, my friend Brett, uh, Rant Almore, at Rant underscore Almore on Twitter. He says, I didn't expect that in a way. I figured we'd be heading into the story more in Juliet's point of view. However, I didn't expect the tone to shift so much from mystery box to more character driven. Again, something feels weird about the screens and the consistency of that image. And all the visuals and editing of the generator scene were very cool and intense, but it did feel like kind of a non-plot point. So I'd be curious if it comes up later. R.I.P. the mayor. That was brutal. She's a great actress, but too kind for this world. Yeah, agreed. Agreed, Brett. Um, and that's it. That That's it for the listener feedback channel. Luke, do you have any final thoughts on this episode? Justice for Mayor Johns. We're going to find those people in judiciary and we're going to make them pay, Alicia. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Now we know that Jules has an angry streak, so let's see her put it to the right kind of use. So, Luke, can you share with us, please, what you're up to and where listeners can find you? Yeah, so I'm just at Luke Middup on Twitter and I'm going to I'm going to be more active on the Discord. In particular, I'm going to leave I'm going to leave hopefully non-spoilery comments as I watch the episode through for the first time on Friday. It's going to be a little live non-spoilery watch along for the first time I watch the episode. Yeah, no, fun, fun. But like my Twitter threads. And yeah, that's where, in addition to the Discord, again, link in the show notes, uh, you can find me on Twitter. You'll also find me talking Marvel on the latest Guardians of the Galaxy recap on the Lorehounds feed. Uh, now we have an exciting announcement. We have joined the Lorehounds network and the Lorehounds is now the publisher of this podcast. So you'll definitely be seeing David and John from the Lorehounds popping up here and we'll be working together more closely in general. If you're not familiar with the Lorehounds podcast, they also do deep dives like this in a bunch of different areas. Look out for upcoming episodes like the Book Nook episode, currently covering one of my all-time favorite fantasy series the earth sea cycle by ursula k Le Guin, and of course you also find current coverage of shows on now like barry ted lasso and beyond if you have any feedback or questions after watching next week's episode episode four titled the truth where juliet tries to win marn's trust while she searches for answers then please reach out to us on the lorehounds discord or look for my pin tweet on twitter uh, or post to the silo series reddit which i always throw up once the episode goes live on apple please get your comments in between friday and before sunday to be included in the episode we'll be back in your feeds with our episode four breakdown full disclosure i'm going to be traveling this week to see my family so gonna try to keep to that monday schedule but if it's a delayed i apologize in advance until then you better hook up your backup generator because this trans mission is about to glitch out.